Well, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff. This is my podcast, mostly for parents of children with cancer or leukemia, but for anyone else who's interested as well. Today I want to talk about clinical trials yet again. And in particular, someone asked me, how do we decide what clinical trials to be running at a given institution? And so I want to explore that a bit. It's going to be a bit messy. It's a bit complicated. And I must say, I haven't got all my thoughts sort of sorted out in completely methodical fashion here. So I might meander about the issues a little bit. But anyway, I hope you'll bear with me on that front. So how do we decide what clinical trials to have open at a hospital? Well, first off, let's just ask the question, well, do we have to have any clinical trials at all? Should we be thinking about this? Do we really need to be having clinical trials? To which I would say, yes, we should be having clinical trials. Let's face it, a lot of children with cancer or leukemia are cured. The great majority are cured. However, there are patients who are not cured. There are still children who die from cancer or leukemia. In addition, in the patients who are cured, a lot of them go through a pretty tough time, pretty rough treatment, chemotherapy drugs, strong drugs, lots of side effects, and totally messed up life for a period, and some of them are left with permanent side effects. And that's not good enough. So I would have said that uh, until we reach our goals, then we better keep doing clinical trials. So what are our goals? Well, first off, we want to see all children survive their cancer. Next, we want to see all children survive their cancer and not have any permanent side effects. After that, we want children to all survive their cancer with no permanent side effects and no short-term side effects during the treatment. So, no side effects at all during treatment. Now, when we get to that point where, well, that that will be a very good day where all children are cured with no short-term or long-term side effects. After that, well, I guess we'll look to achieve all of that and for the treatment to be cheap. (laughs) And beyond that, uh, we will want that treatment to be available to children with cancer or leukemia all over the world. So they're our ultimate goals, I would think. And I sort of feel that until we get there, well, we should keep working away at it, trying to improve our treatments, trying to improve outcomes, reduce side effects, etc. And so we need to be in the business of clinical trials until we get there. Now, fortunately, paediatric oncology units are mostly found within academic centres. They tend to be found within the big teaching hospitals, the big children's hospitals or the big cancer centres. So that's where childhood cancer predominantly is treated and that lends itself pretty well to this clinical trials philosophy. In adult oncology, it's not as much like that. There's a lot of adult oncology care that has to take place 
at smaller institutions and you can see why adult cancer is just that much more common and in fact adults are much more common than children. But in paediatric cancer most of the time care has ended up in these big academic centres and so a clinical trials philosophy is pretty much part and parcel of the culture of treating childhood cancer. But having said that, there would be paediatric oncologists who are right into clinical trials and enthusiastic and mad about conduct and participation in clinical trials. And then there would be others for whom it's not as much of a priority, but they can be very valuable, precious clinicians. There's a lot to be said for the astute, experienced paediatric oncologist who knows the data, knows the cutting-edge literature, knows all the results and can apply it to each individual patient even if participating in ongoing trials isn't their particular priority. But like I said, most of the time participation in clinical trials does end up part of the sort of core culture of a childhood cancer unit. So let's think about some considerations as far as choosing what trials one might open at your institution. And in no particular order, I guess we need to have the opportunity to be in a trial, and that requires that there be a scientifically valid thing to be evaluating in a trial. We need to have enough patience to participate in a trial, and we need to have the resources to conduct the trial, you know, money to pay the salaries of all the research staff that are involved in running a clinical trial. So we have to have a trial available to us, right? I mean, in an ideal world, one would hope that most patients could be enrolled on a clinical trial at the start of therapy, and then if there was a relapse of the cancer, one would hope that one would have another trial available to them. And so you would hope that at most of those sort of key big decision points in treatment that you would have a clinical trial to offer. So then you're getting close to 100% clinical trial participation. Now, I don't think any unit achieves that, but that might be ideal in a perfect world. But let's talk about trials being available for an institution. Now, let's pick an institution that's, you know, a pretty big institution, but not huge. Let's say a unit that gets about 100 new patients every year diagnosed with cancer or leukemia. So that's a big-ish institution, but it's not one of the huge ones. Let's think about a place like that. Now, the first thing to remember is that with 100 patients, you'll never have enough patients to conduct clinical trials in newly diagnosed patients just within that institution. You'll never have enough patients with acute leukemia or neuroblastoma to get enough patients onto a clinical trial to really prove that some treatment is better than the standard. You will be able to pilot certain things, you know, look at developing certain new techniques, conduct some preliminary evaluation perhaps, but you'll never be able to conduct the big study that proves that your treatment for acute leukemia is better than the standard. And so what this means is that if you're going to have 
a very full clinical trials portfolio for your unit, you're going to need to team up with other organisations. And what I'm talking about here is joining one of these multi-institution research groups that exist around the world. For instance, in North America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, there's the Children's Oncology Group. In Europe, there's SIOP, Société Internationale Oncologie Pédiatrique. That's uh, the European group that takes in institutions from all over Europe and puts them all together to conduct big research studies in cancer. And then within certain countries, they can have their own little groups. So the uh, the German group, French group, UK group. There are these multi-institutional groups within countries, and then there's these multi-country, multinational research organisations. So this biggish hospital I'm talking about, they need to be a member institution of some sort of multi-institutional trials group like Children's Oncology Group so that they can have access to research trials in newly diagnosed patients. So if you take a given tumour type that has a pretty good outlook, suppose a disease where 80 or 85% of patients are cured, well, to demonstrate a further improvement on that is going to take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. So you really need to be able to put together a huge population base, multiple institutions to get enough patients to prove anything. So that's the first thing. For those hundred patients I talked about, newly diagnosed with cancer or leukemia, you need to be in a trials group so that you can have these trials that are open in newly diagnosed patients. Now, even having joined an organisation like that, there will be still times where there is no trial open for a given disease type. There are times when trials have closed and the new trial hasn't opened. Sometimes that's because, frankly, there isn't a good enough idea available yet or a given new treatment of sufficient interest to warrant committing the resources to a research trial. So there are times when there is no brilliant idea out there that's worthy of study in a big, huge Phase three trial. Or it may be that there is a brilliant idea, but they need to, to conduct certain other pilot studies or preliminary evaluations before they can get to the big Phase three study to roll out to all the institutions. Then there's situations where trials can't be conducted for other reasons. For instance, if a given tumour type has a very, very good outlook... Sometimes there just is not going to be the capacity to improve on the outcomes. So there are certain subtypes of Wilms tumour where close to 100% of patients are cured and where the treatment isn't particularly intensive. Now in that context, it can be hard to design a study or to come up with a brilliant idea to commit a lot of resources to because already the great majority of patients are cured and the treatment is low intensity. 
So there are certain patient groups where it's hard to come up with a study just because the outlook is already very good. The next consideration with these 100 new patients might be that you just don't like the particular trial that is on offer. So suppose you're a member institution of a particular research organisation with 200 hospitals in it and they come up with a research trial. Well, there will be times where people of goodwill and expert just disagree on the particular trial that's being put up. Some would just say it was the wrong priority or they would have preferred to be evaluating something else. There may be something in the trial design that they just don't like. And this is legitimate. You would hope that your treating doctor wouldn't just follow every trial that's served up blindly but would look at it critically and see whether it really was an appropriate trial. Now, if the trial opens, it's been through multiple levels of review and scientific evaluation and ethical evaluation, but nonetheless, there can be times where people of goodwill genuinely don't see it as the right trial to be doing and would prefer not to participate. But from all of this, if I was to generalise, one would like to have a trial open for the more common tumour types. So generally speaking, one would hope one could have a trial open for patients who've been newly diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. That's the most common malignancy in childhood. And similarly, one would like to have trials open for the other more common tumour types. Acute myeloid leukaemia, the sarcomas, the lymphomas, neuroblastoma, medulloblastoma, ependymoma, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. So one would normally like to have trials open for these more common tumour types. In addition, one would like to have trials open in those tumour types where the outcomes are poor. So these are the real priority areas to improve the outcomes. So if we have a tumour type, and for instance, the very favourable forms of Wilms tumour, where the outcomes are already very good, well, even though it's a relatively common diagnosis in our group, we might not prioritise it as much as a tumour type that's just as common, but where the outcomes are very poor. So in some of the brain tumour types, for instance where the outcomes are poor, one would very much like to have a trial open because one might feel the need to be improving the outcomes all the more in that context. In a perfect world, we'll have a trial open for every patient, of course. But if one had to choose, that might be a consideration. Now, as you get down to rarer tumour types, it might be that you have to make a choice not to open a certain study for newly diagnosed patients. Now, that's not desirable. I mean, it's in the rare patients where we really need these big trials organisations to get enough patients together to improve a treatment. So the really rare cancers, we really need to all get together. But if resourcing becomes an issue and the units stretched as far as being able to open trials, well, it may be that you have to prioritise opening a trial for a more common cancer like acute lymphoblastic leukaemia 
over a less common cancer, you know, the sort of tumour type where you might see a patient only every five years. Because there's a lot of effort in opening a trial, by the way. You have to submit all this paperwork to the Ethics Committee. You have to submit documents to your regulators at Canberra or Washington or wherever else. You have to submit reports to the Ethics Committee periodically. You have to submit amendments. There's a lot of paperwork and effort just in having a trial open, even if you don't put a patient on the study. So sometimes you just have to choose which studies to open, and you might open the one for acute lymphoblastic leukemia rather than something less common like, I don't know, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So again, in these newly diagnosed patients, in that particular setting, one would need to have trials available to you, usually via COG or COP or a group like that. One would normally want to have trials open for the more common malignancies and for the particularly problematic malignancies. And of course, one would need to support the aims and the science involved in the particular study. Another consideration would be if a unit had a particular interest in a particular tumour type. So for instance, if a hospital recruited the biggest, most famousest brain tumour doctor for children in the entire world, and that doctor came and worked at your unit, well, you might expect that every brain tumour trial would be opened. Or if someone has a particular interest in sarcoma, and or if particularly they get a lot of referrals of patients with sarcoma, then it might be all the more reason to make sure the sarcoma trials are open. These would be things to consider. So that was in the newly diagnosed patients. Now, as we know, these patients will undergo treatment. Many of them will be permanently cured. There will be patients who have a relapse of their tumour at some point. And so they'll be candidates for treatment of a relapse. Terrible thing to happen, of course. Hopefully, in these situations, we can have a further clinical trial available and treat the patient within that clinical trial. Again, we would hope that the trial will incorporate the best available therapy and have the potential to improve upon it. Or if the best available therapy just isn't very effective, then we would hope that it would offer some new treatment, hopefully with the potential to improve on things. So in this situation, likewise, we want to have a clinical trial open of some sort of treatment that we can offer at relapse. And in these situations, it may be that we're now talking about phase one and phase two studies. Now remember, these are trials that tend to have lesser numbers of patients in them. It's the big phase three studies that need hundreds and hundreds of patients. Phase one and phase two studies can have lesser numbers of patients in them. So where do these phase one and phase two trials come from? Well, they may be on offer again through the multinational trials group. So children's oncology group, CEOP. Asian group, Japanese group, etc. They may well have a phase two study open for a given tumour type, testing some new therapy. They may have a phase one trial open, but usually those organisations only have selected hospitals that can open the phase one studies. 
So it's the phase two studies. They're the ones that they tend to roll out to all of the institutions and have them available. So there may be a phase two study on offer through children's oncology group, CIOP, Japanese group, German group, etc. Alternatively, the hospital might have chosen to participate in an industry study. So, for instance, a drug company might have a drug that they are looking to have evaluated in what we call an industry study. So a, a study that's sponsored by the drug company, and particularly for some of their phase one studies as they bring new drugs to children for the first time, the drug companies are often behind those outside of the multinational consortium. And so the hospital might have chosen to participate in a trial like that. Now, why do they want to do that? Well, it may be a way to access some new and exciting drug. This might be the way that they can get their hands on the drug, whereas it wouldn't otherwise be available. These industry trials, though, they can be a lot of work. Uh, drug companies have huge amounts of money and resources wrapped up in their investment. They want everything to be done absolutely meticulously, and they can be a huge amount of work to run these industry trials. Now, the drug companies very often provide money to support that research effort, but still it's a lot of work. And so a typical institution might have some of these trials open, but they won't necessarily have a trial open for every single patient. Another option would be for the hospital to be running its own clinical trial in this situation. Like I said, in phase one and phase two studies, sometimes you only need a smaller number of patients and if you're a big enough unit, you may have enough patients to run your own small study in this sort of situation. Or you might partner up with one or two or three other hospitals to run what we call a limited institution study. Now, three or four hospitals often won't have enough patients for the big phase three study in the newly diagnosed patient where you need hundreds and hundreds of patients. But they may have enough patients to conduct a limited study, a phase one or a phase two sort of trial, and that can contribute useful data that then a larger consortium can run with as they look to design a prospective phase three study. But again, it all comes down to numbers you need to know that you will have enough patients that could be enrolled on a trial to justify all of the effort taken to open the study and to keep it open. So if you're a very big unit, let's take an even bigger one. Let's, let's take a unit that gets 200 patients a year, 250, 300. We're talking a really huge unit now. Well, this unit will want to have phase three studies open for many of the common malignancies, probably via membership of a multinational group. And they're likely to want to have phase two trials open for most situations, and they're likely to have a group of phase one studies open as well. But as you go down to smaller institutions, then all of this becomes a bit more tenuous. You don't quite have the numbers to justify opening all of these trials. In addition, you're unlikely to have the resources involved. So let's talk about those resources. Like I said, opening a trial is a lot of work. Ethics committee submissions, regulatory submissions, amendments, informed patient consent forms that have to be designed to comply with the multinational group's exact rules, 
There's all sorts of stuff to be done. And then industry trials, they send their monitor over and their auditor over to plow through the charts, go through it all, make sure you crossed your T's, dotted your I's. This is all good stuff. This is all protecting the patients and it's protecting the quality of the science. I'm not complaining about it, but it takes resources. It's a lot of work. So where does the resourcing come from for all of this? Like I said, for the industry trials, oftentimes the drug company will provide a budget to cover the costs of all of this work that I'm describing. And oftentimes, I think it can indeed cover the cost. But for a lot of other research trials, there isn't the same amount of funding coming from the trials organisation. So a lot of those big trials organisations may provide an amount of grant funding, research funding for every patient enrolled on the study. But very often, it's not an amount that covers the actual work involved in putting the patient on the study and monitoring them and reporting on them all through the trial. So very often, cancer units have to have their own resources to cover the costs of trial participation. The other problem there, of course, is that often health administrations and departments of health, etc., they don't think of all this trial participation as their core business. They want to run hospitals. All this research trial stuff isn't necessarily what they think is the highest priority. And so they may well not consider it their job to provide funding for all of these research staff. Now, that's a shame because it's by being in these trials that we're improving outcomes, we're ensuring quality, we're answering questions for future generations, and we're accessing novel drugs and novel therapies and cutting-edge lab techniques for real patients right now. So I really wish they would consider this their core business, but the fact remains that very often we have to rely on charities and so on to help us to fund our clinical trials infrastructure. In some situations, a research grant can be applied for, and if you're successful, that's great. You can have the funds to conduct the trial, but that's not always the case. So the clinical trials office for our childhood cancer trials is very often a mishmash of monies that come from the big multinational trials organization, depending on how many patients we enroll, monies that come from pharmaceutical industries supporting the conduct of their particular trial, monies from grants that we've applied for and been successful, and sometimes monies that are provided within the hospital budget and Department of Health sort of budgets, and very often we rely on donated monies to a large degree. So now back to the question, how do we decide what trials to open? Let me see if I can answer this a bit more systematically now with all of that background. So again, I think we would like to have trials open for newly diagnosed patients in the more common tumour types and particularly in those where there is the greatest room to improve on things. Next, we would like to have clinical trials available for patients who have had a relapse and in particular We would like to have trials available for the more common tumour types that do relapse. We'd like them to be trials that we can be enthusiastic about scientifically. So drugs and treatments that we really are hopeful will be a step forward. And we'd like them to be trials 
that are manageable from a resourcing standpoint. Next, we want to accommodate the particular scientific interests within a given unit. So there are units that have a particular expertise and interest in certain tumour types. There are groups that have particular interest in bone marrow transplant, or there may be some that are particularly interested in immunotherapy, or different forms of imaging, or different forms of psychologic and supportive care. These are all very legitimate special areas of interest, and a given unit will tend to pursue those areas of expertise and interest where possible. But over all of this, there's a constant question of resources, resources, resources. What it costs to run all of these trials, because it's not cheap. And so decisions have to be made, priorities have to be set, and it's an ongoing problem. Then you have the question of which trials will be made available to you. So certain of those international studies are confined to just one country and they don't allow it to be in the other countries. Certain drug companies will have trials open and you'll have to compete with other countries for which uh, centres will be able to open the study. Some trials will require particular equipment or scans or something that your hospital might not have. There's all sorts of other considerations. Anyway, I'm trying to get my head around all of this. It's a complicated question. How do you decide what trials to open? I hope some of this has made sense as far as shedding some light on some of the key considerations. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer for any given institution, but these are some of the things that go through your head as you decide, will we open this study or not? Anyway, thanks for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.